charm, stealth, and lethal bite. Naja, by the way, is from the Sanskrit, and a reference to the great Naja spirit of the earth, who protected our Lord Buddha during a dreadful storm in the forest where he meditated. The elevated expressway is the only road in the city where a Mercedes E-Series can outrun a Toyota Echo, and I drive without hope or haste, which comes from the devil. Slowness comes from Buddha. Just for form, feeling out of place amongst the elite vehicles whose owners can afford the toll, Mercs and BMWs, Japanese 4x4s, plus a lot of taxis with farangs in the back. We fly above the brothel hotels of the Nana district before I take a slip road into the primeval jam below. It is too hot and humid to honk. I spy our guns and holsters in a tangle at Pichai's feet, along with the radio and the portable siren to clamp on the roof when we finally go into action. I nudge Pichai. Better call him. Tell him we lost the mark. Pichai groans, passes a hand through the condemned jet-black locks which I have always envied, and bends double to retrieve the Korean shortwave radio. An exchange of static and the unsurprising intelligence that Police Colonel Vicorn, Chief of District 8, cannot be located. Call him on his mobile. Pichai fishes his own mobile out of a pocket and presses the auto-dial button. He speaks to our colonel in terms too respectful for modern English to carry, somewhere between sire and my lord, listens for a moment, then slips the Nokia back in his pocket. He's going to ask traffic to cooperate. If the black farang shows up, traffic will call us on the radio. I turn up the air conditioning and wind the seat back. I try to practice the insight meditation I learned long ago in my teens and have practiced intermittently ever since. The trick is to catch the aggregates as they speed through the mind without grasping them. Every thought is a hook, and if we can only avoid those hooks, we might achieve nirvana in one or two lifetimes, instead of this endless torture of incarnation after incarnation. I am interrupted by more static from the radio. Black Farang and Grey Mercedes reported stopped at Dao Praia on the slip road under the bridge. Pichai calls the colonel, who authorizes the siren. I wait while Pichai slips out of the car, clamps the siren to the roof, where it flashes and wails to no effect on the gridlock, and walks over to the sentry box, where the traffic cops are dozing. At the same time, he is strapping on his holster and gun and reaching in his pocket for his police ID. A more advanced soul than I, he gives no sign of the disgust he feels at being trapped in this pollution called life on Earth. He would not wish to poison anyone else's mind. Nevertheless, he smacks his hand somewhat violently against the glass of the sentry box and yells at them to wake the fuck up. Smiles and a gentlemanly discussion before the boys and Donkey Brown emerge to take charge. They come up to me in the car and there is the usual double-take when they see what I am. The Vietnam War left plenty of half-castes in Krong Tep, but few of us turned into cops. There are several inches of slack within which every car can shunt, and our colleagues show considerable skill and cunning in making a space. In no time at all, I am able to drive up onto the sidewalk, where the siren terrorizes the pedestrians. Bichai grins. I am skilled at very dangerous driving from the days when we used to take drugs and steal cars together, a golden age which came to an end when Pichai murdered our Yaba dealer, and we had to seek refuge in the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. There will be time, in this chronicle, to explain Yaba. Krungtep means City of Angels, but we are happy to call it Bangkok, if it helps to separate a farang from his money. I remembered what Dao Praia Bridge was famous for. Squatters, a whole village, 
They've been there for more than 20 years. They are all tribespeople from the northwest, Karen. They have a big still. Gambling and whiskey are their main industries, with a little prostitution, begging, and theft to make ends meet. They must pay for Dekron. What district is it? I shrug. Fourteenth? Fifteenth? The fifteenth is Suvitz. He's a bastard. I nod. He will be reborn as a louse in the anus of a dog. Not before he spent eighty-two thousand years as a hungry ghost. Is it eighty-two? That is the standard sentence for men like him. I furrow my brow. Pichai's meditation is way ahead of mine, but his mastery of the scriptures is often shaky. The gray Mercedes can be seen from the bridge as we pass over the canal, which surprises me. It is more than two hours since traffic told us where it had been sighted, perhaps by one of the squatters. Why would a squatter call traffic? Like many things in my country, the slip road from the bridge to the riverbank peters out without contributing to the economy. It is just there, like us. I crunch to a halt on the gravel which has abruptly replaced the tarmac, about thirty yards from the Mercedes, which is surrounded by men, women, and children. Pichai gets out of the car first. He's still wearing his gun, which rides on his left buttock as I hurry to follow him, clipping on my own holster as we stride across the gravel toward the crowd, which makes way for us. What happened? What are you all staring at? Not a murmur, not even a nod but a woman in a torn T-shirt and sarong, barefoot, far advanced in alcoholic poisoning, raises her head toward the bridge and howls. At the same time, I hear Pichai grunt in the way a brave man grunts when another might scream. Despite himself, he steps back from the car, enabling me to see. I also grunt, but it is my way of muffling fear. I look at Pichai, who was a better shot than I. Pichai says, Look at the door. The Mercedes is a five-door elongated hatchback, and someone has slipped a C-shaped piece of steel, of the kind used in reinforced concrete, over the handles of the front and rear doors on the driver's side. Anyone, even a child, could simply roll down the window, remove the crude device and escape, but it would take time, time to work out what was jamming the doors, time to roll down the window. It would also take a mind not clouded by terror. Many Americans are afraid of snakes, even Marines. The Viet Cong used them as weapons in the tunnels of Kuchi to great effect. This one, an enormous python, has wrapped itself around the black man's shoulders and neck and is trying to swallow his great head. I note that pythons do not normally shake like that, nor do they normally ride in Mercedes. Is the black man shaking the serpent, or vice versa? I order the people to move away while Pichai takes out his gun. The bullet might ricochet. It could go anywhere. Go back under the bridge. When the people have moved, Bichai crouches at the driver's window, but is unsatisfied with the angle of his shot. He does not want to hit the Marine, who might still be alive, but how to tell if the glass will alter the trajectory of the bullet. He walks quickly and soberly around the car before returning to his original position. Someone jammed the other doors as well. He has mastered himself, and I know what is going through his mind. He has vowed to erase the appalling karma which must follow his murder of the Yaba dealer by becoming a Buddhist saint an arhat, in this lifetime. An arhat does not hesitate to lay down his life when duty so requires. An arhat masters fear. He crouches, takes careful aim, and fires. Three-quarters of the python's head is blown away. Pichai slips the metal clip from the door and opens it, but the huge marine is top-heavy, with a snake now slack around his head, and falls onto the door, which is too much for Pichai to hold. Before I can rush to help, the marine and python have fallen onto my dear friend, pinning him to the ground. I assume that his scream is simply from fright as I go to him, at first not seeing, not believing, 
the small cobra which has attached itself passionately to his left eye. With a great wrench I drag him from under the marine, take out my gun and lay down beside him while he rides with a cobra in one hand. Another characteristic of Naja Siemensis is that it never lets go. I shoot it through the throat, and it is only then that I understand what Pichai is trying to explain through his agony. There are dozens of them. A virtual cascade, shivering strangely and spitting as they pour out of the car, one peeps between buttons on the black man's shirt, which is alive with undulations. Don't let them reach the people. Shoot them. They must have been drugged to shake like that. He is telling me he is as good as dead, and there is no point radioing for help. Even if they sent a helicopter, it would be too late. No one survives a cobra bite in the eye. Already the eye is the size of a golf ball and about to pop, and the snakes are approaching in a narcotic frenzy. Numb at that moment, I start to shoot them, becoming frenzied myself. I rush to the Toyota for more ammunition and change clips perhaps as many as seven times. With anguish contorting my features, I lie in wait for the snakes which are trapped in the black man's clothes. One by one they writhe out of him, and I shoot them on the ground. I am still shooting long after all the snakes are dead. After we murdered the Yaba dealer, our mothers secured us an interview with the abbot of a forest monastery in the far north, who told us we were the lowest form of life in the ten thousand universes. Pichai had thrust the broken bottle into the jugular of humanity, and therefore of the Buddha himself, while I giggled. After six months of mosquitoes and meditation, remorse had gouged our hearts. Six months after that, the abbot told us we were going to mend our karma by becoming cops. His youngest brother was a police colonel named Vicorn, chief of District 8. Corruption was forbidden to us, however. If we wanted to escape the murderer's hell, we would have to be honest cops. More, we would have to be arhat cops. The abbot is undoubtedly an arhat himself, a fully realized man who voluntarily pauses on the shore of Nirvana, postponing his total release in order to teach his wisdom to wretches like us. He knows everything. Pichai is with him now, while I am stranded here in the pollution called life on earth. I must try harder with my meditation. I waited by the car for the van after covering Pichai with my jacket. A police cruiser came with the van and a team began collecting the dead snakes and taking video shots of the scene. It took four men to carry the python, which kept slipping from their shoulders until they learned to handle it. I sat with Pichai and the black American in the back of the van while it raced to the morgue and stood by while the attendant stripped my friend and I tried not to look at the left side of his face. The giant negro lay nearby on a gurney, his naked body covered in soot-colored buboes and drops of water from melted ice which shone like diamonds under the lights. He wore three pearls in one ear, no earrings at all in the other. I signed for the small plastic bag of Pichai's personal effects, which included his Buddha necklace and a larger bag of clothes, and went home to the hovel I rent in a suburb by the river. Under the rules, I should have gone directly to the police station and begun to file my report, fill in forms, but I was too heartsick and didn't want to face the other cops with my grief. There had been too much jealousy at the closeness of my friendship with Pichai. The Dharma teaches us the impermanence of all phenomena. But you cannot prepare yourself for the loss of the phenomenon you love more than yourself. Pichai's cell phone ran out of prepaid units when I tried to call my mother from my room. 
There is no telephone in any of the rooms in my project, but on each floor there is an office belonging to the management company where a telephone is available. Under the eye of the fat female clerk, who was addicted to shrimp-flavored rice puffs, I call my mother, who lives in the steaming plains about 300 kilometers north of Krung Tep, in a place called Pechabun. She and Pichai's mother are former colleagues, close friends, who retired to their hometown together, bought a plot of land, and built two gaudy palaces on it. That is to say, the two-story houses with green-tiled roofs and covered balconies are palatial by country standards. While I wait, I hear the crunch-crunch-crunch of Fatsom plowing through her puffs, and the burden of her attention is like a hundred sacks of rice on my shoulders, for she has seen my devastation. I listen to the ringing tone on my mother's mobile telephone. She changes the model every two years because she always wants the smallest. Now she owns a Motorola so tiny she is able to keep it in her cleavage. She always answers cautiously, never knowing if it will be a former lover, perhaps a farang from Europe or America who has woken up in the middle of the night longing for her. The loneliness of farangs can be a fatal disease which distorts their minds and tortures them until they snap. When they begin to sink, they grasp at any straw, even a Bangkok whore they had for a week on a sex vacation long ago. Hello, I tell her, and for once she has nothing to say. I listen to her breathe, her silence, her love, this woman who sold her body to bring me up. I'm so sorry, Sanjay, she says finally. You want me to tell Pichai's mother for you? Yes, I don't think I could face her grief right now. Not as great as yours, my love. Do you want to come up? Stay with me for a few days. No. I'm going to kill the people who did it. Silence. I know you will. But be careful, darling. My mother sighs. Come up soon, darling. Or do you want me to come down to you? No, no, I'll come. After it's all over. Fat Psalm is slack-jawed for once when I replace the receiver, a bunch of pink puffs half-eaten between her teeth. She wants to say she is sorry, but doesn't know me well enough. The nature of her karma is that she cannot communicate feelings because of some defilement from a previous lifetime, and is therefore condemned to be fat and resentful. She tries, though, with some futile wrinkling of the brow, which I do not acknowledge as I leave the room. I hear the telephone ringing in the office as I stride down the corridor and think that Fatsam will have to finish her mouthful of puffs before she answers it. I am on the point of inserting my key in the padlock on my door, which so much resembles the door of a cell, when I hear her calling and, turning, see that she has emerged from her office and is rolling toward me breathlessly. Her